God, as we come in here to worship you this morning, as we come in here to hear from you, there's so many things that we want to be in our control, but most things are not at all. So God, we, we know that this is a broken world and that sometimes that creates really difficult circumstances, but we want to grow in trusting you. So God, we ask that you would be pleased with our worship this morning, uh, but that especially you would work in our hearts that we would grow to trust you more and more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. Good morning. If you're newer to Trinity, my name is Matt, uh, and it is a joy to be with you all today and to have a chance to share from God's Word this morning. Uh, but I do want to start off with a personal story. I want to tell you just a little bit of a part of a failed date that my wife Hannah and I tried to go on back when we were teenagers. Now, this happened a long time ago in a land where there was no such thing as cell phone GPS directions. Uh, we were living farther up on the North Shore, but we had heard rumors that there was a movie theater in Methuen called The Loop, and the rumors said that they had much more comfortable seats that you could even recline while you were watching a movie. So we went on MapQuest.com and printed off directions and then set off on our way. Uh, but when we got there, the movie we wanted to see was already sold out. So we left and we drove around for a little while trying to figure out what to do instead. But unfortunately, what we ended up doing instead was getting lost in the middle of Lawrence. <laughs> so eventually, I pulled over at a convenience store to ask for directions. And when I walked in, there was just one man working there, and he only spoke Spanish. And I had taken Spanish for several years in school, and there was a time where I could even hold up a basic conversation, but my Spanish was starting to get a little bit rusty at this point. We were parked on the right side of the store, so I asked him, how do you get back to the highway from a la izquierda? Now, if you speak Spanish, you might already notice a problem here, but we'll get back to that in a minute. He gave me directions, and soon enough, we were driving up a long and twisty ramp to get on the highway, except that once we got most of the way up the ramp, we noticed those red signs on both sides of the road that say, wrong way. And we both realized at the exact same moment that I was actually driving up the off-ramp, and it made it most of the way up. So I slammed on the brakes, I shifted into reverse, floored it backwards so that a car wouldn't come off the highway and hit us head on. And that's when I remembered that a la izquierda doesn't mean on the right. It means on the left. And if you ask the wrong question, you just might get the wrong answer. Now, before we get to our main passage for today from the book of Ephesians, I actually want to take a look at another passage quickly from the Gospel of Mark where two of the very first disciples asked Jesus the wrong question. This is from Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, Jesus, Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other on your left at your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the other ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them all together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, 
and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, when James and John walk up to Jesus here, they have a really big question for him. They're thinking about power and authority and about the fact that after Jesus leaves this earth and returns to heaven, he's going to be sitting on a throne and ruling over the entire universe. So when they ask if they can sit on his right and his left, they're really asking if they can be co-rulers with him. They're asking if they can be second in command. James and John want to know who gets to be in charge. And when the other disciples hear about this, they get mad. They can't believe that James and John tried to go behind their backs and make a power play like this. They all erupt into an argument about who is the greatest, who is the most important, and who should get to rule over the others. Until Jesus speaks up. He calls them over and he essentially tells them that they're all asking the wrong question. Because when it comes to following Jesus, the question is not who gets to be in charge. But the question is actually, how can each of us serve and sacrifice for each other as a witness to the love of Jesus? And that's how I want you to engage with this passage as we open up the book of Ephesians and continue our series this morning. Uh, We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33, and this is a passage that can be misunderstood and misused if we approach it with the wrong question. So keep that in mind as we read God's Word together and listen for what He might say to us through it today. If you want to open up a Bible and follow along, Ephesians is in the New Testament. It's about 90% of the way through the Bible if you're flipping through there. It comes a little bit after 1st and 2nd Corinthians. We'll also have it up here on the screens behind me, and we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. But before we read this, let's pray. God, we believe that your Holy Spirit inspired this word. And we believe believe that you work in our hearts as we listen to it and as we read it and look at it today. God, we're coming from so many different situations and experiences and contexts, uh, but you have something to say to each one of us. So God, we ask that uh, you would help us to open up our hearts, to listen with a humble ear and an open mind and that your Holy Spirit would speak to us clearly whatever we need to know. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, reading from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, as I said a minute ago, uh, this passage is easy to misunderstand, and it has unfortunately been misused at times in some pretty harmful ways. So as we go through this, we're going to look at some of the grammar, some of the Greek words, the cultural context, in order to help us understand the original intent of this passage better so that we can hear more clearly what God might speak to it, through it, to us today. But here's the key thing I want you to keep in mind as we do that. This is not the Apostle Paul's essay on gender roles. And this passage is not trying to answer the question, who gets to be in charge? If that's the question we ask when we read these verses, we're going to miss the main point. Because the primary purpose of this passage is to inspire all of us to love each other sacrificially as a witness to the sacrificial love of Jesus. And on that note, if you are not married, please don't tune me out. This has something for you too. This whole passage explores the idea of sacrificial love and the way we can live that out as a witness to the way that Jesus has loved us. And we are all called to do that with each other as a church, in our small groups, as part of our families, among our friends, for our co-workers, and to our neighbors. This part of Ephesians zooms in on what this looks like in marriage, but it's the same idea that this letter emphasizes about every other relationship in our lives as well. And marriage can sometimes become a sort of idol in the church. On the one hand, we do hear the Bible telling us about the goodness and the beauty of love and marriage. But on the other hand, we also watch a lot of Disney and romantic comedies that tell us if we find the perfect partner, they'll complete us, and that will be the most fulfilling thing that life can offer. And if we accidentally blend both of these together, we can forget that Paul, who wrote this passage, was single. And not only that, but Jesus, who is the perfect analogy of love in this passage, Jesus was never married either. So if you're single and you want to get married, if you're single and you're not looking to get married, if you're dating, if you're divorced, if you're widowed, or anything else, you can reflect the image of God just as powerfully as anyone, and you don't need to be married to do that. Thank you. <laughs> now, let's look at the context of this passage within the whole letter of Ephesians. Uh, last week... David described how the first half of Ephesians focuses on God's incredible grace and how he gives us a new identity as part of his family. And then he went on to explain that the second half of Ephesians goes from there and it encourages us and urges us to live in line with this new identity, to live as if we really are the children of God who follow after the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And you can see this idea stated in multiple different ways leading up to our passage today. If you start halfway through the book of Ephesians, the beginning of chapter 4, it says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. A few verses after that, in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, it says that Jesus is equipping his people so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then just a few more verses after that, we get to verses 22 and 24, which says to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, 
and put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Finally, then, as we turn to chapter 5, right at the beginning of that, we read, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So as we've been moving towards our passage, this central theme has been repeated over and over and over again, that we are called to keep growing into our new identity and to keep learning to live and love more like Jesus. And then the first verse of the section we're looking at today, it starts off with another version of the same theme. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You could paraphrase this and say, sacrifice for each other as your worship to Jesus and as your witness to Jesus. And that's the thesis and the summary of this whole passage. Everything that comes after that just expounds on this point. Now, we read the next verse. It says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And some of you might feel a little uncomfortable with this part. Maybe you've heard someone teach that God created men to be in charge and women to submit. Or perhaps someone told you that husbands get to make all the decisions and wives should just obey. But let's take a little closer look at this. Uh, In the original text of Ephesians, which is written in Greek, this verse says, Wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. Wait, what? There, There isn't even a verb in there. (laughs) That actually doesn't make any sense grammatically on its own. And that's because it was never meant to be emphasized on its own like that. It's part of a bigger sentence that includes the verse before it. And the verb has already been stated there, and it's just implied again here in connection with that same point. So all together, when we read it, it should sound more like this. All of you submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. And wives, do likewise to your husbands as you do to the Lord. So whatever submit means here, it's not just something for women to do. This is all stated together in one sentence on purpose because we're not supposed to separate it out like that. Whatever wives are being asked to do for their husbands is the very same thing that every Christian is being first asked to do for each other. But since this passage does encourage wives to submit, what kind of submission are we talking about? What what does this look like? Does submission mean subordination or forced obedience to a master? No, that's not what this is about. The Gospels shock us with picture after picture of Jesus, the God of the universe, showing us what submission looks like. And then the rest of the New Testament continues to call on every Christian. There's so many verses over and over again calling us to follow the example of Jesus and submit to each other. Christ-like submission is sacrifice, it's selflessness, it's voluntary, it's loving someone so much that you genuinely put them before yourself. So wives, in what ways are you loving your husbands like this? I'm not going to prescribe how you should do this because this is something that has to grow in your own heart as you receive this kind of love from Jesus and then it starts to overflow out of you. But I would encourage you to reflect on this and to pray consistently about how you can love and submit like this. Now, 
Before I move on, I do need to add one more thing, even though I wish I didn't need to say this. If you are in an abusive relationship, if you are in a controlling, manipulative, toxic, or unhealthy relationship, this passage is not saying that you should just go along with it and accept that. The Apostle Paul is speaking in general terms here, and he's not trying to address an exhaustive list of every situation that you might find yourself in. And if someone is treating you like that, it is not your responsibility to just accept it. And that is not the most loving thing that you can do either. Sorry. I, um, I've had to get personally involved in situations like this, and it kind of messes with my heart. But the most loving thing you can do if you are in a situation like that is to speak up. It's to find someone that can help you think through potential boundaries and help hold them accountable. Because they need to hear God's challenge to change their behavior for the good of the people around them and for their own good as well. And if you need someone to talk to, please know that you can come speak to any of our staff or pastors and you will be safe with us. Now, let's turn to the husbands. I want to start out with a little cultural background here first so that we can understand the context that this letter was written in a bit better. Uh, this whole passage in Ephesians is often referred to as a household code because it deals with instructions for how different members of the household should act towards each other. And there were other versions of household codes outside the Bible that Greek and Roman philosophers wrote around the same time too. But there's some pretty serious differences between those ones and this one that we find here in Ephesians. If we look at the household code written by the Greek philosopher Aristotle, for example, it emphasizes how men should exercise authority to subdue their households, to rule over their wives and children and slaves. And that was the typical perspective. During that time period, husbands had free reign to treat their wives pretty much however they wanted. It was very common for men to be unfaithful, regularly engaging with prostitutes and other women, and there was pretty much nothing that their wives could do about it. It was also socially acceptable and totally legal for husbands to beat and abuse their wives for pretty much whatever reason and whenever they wanted to. So it's within this kind of culture that the Holy Spirit, working through the writing of Paul, is calling on men to change in a radical way and urging husbands to start leading like Jesus and loving their wives sacrificially. Now, when we look at verse 23, it says, For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. And in theology circles, there's a word headship that gets thrown around a lot. It's based on verses like this, and it's related to the idea of leadership. But we need to explore what kind of headship or leadership Paul is talking about here because there are so many broken and sinful patterns of leadership that we see all around us in this world, and sometimes those can accidentally start to influence us more than the leadership example that Jesus gives us. So I want to look a little closer at this word head and the idea of headship, and in our culture today, an analogy like this would imply something like head honcho. Uh, so when we read this, the first thing most of us think about is having authority over someone else or being in charge. Now, the word used here for head in the original language is kafale, and sometimes it can include that kind of meaning, but that's not a perfect parallel 
to the way that kafale is typically used in the Greek of that time or in the New Testament. When kafale is used in an analogy like this, it often conveys the idea of being the source of something or the beginning of something. Paul uses kafale in this way in another letter that he wrote, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when he talks about man being the head of woman, and he connects this idea to the fact that Adam was created before Eve and that Adam was the physical source of Eve. But then, to make sure we don't read into that too much, Paul quickly points out that men are also born from women, so therefore we're all interdependent on each other. But the point here is, when you read head in this passage, or when you think about headship, don't get too stuck on thinking about authority or being in charge of someone else. But remember how it communicates this idea of being the source of or the beginning of something. Or in this context, think about going first or taking the initiative. That's the kind of leadership that husbands are being called to here. And it's explained more in verse 25 where it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So if we put that all together, this letter is talking to men who have all the social and legal power. They can treat their wives however they want with no earthly consequences. And if they follow the patterns of the culture around them, they're going to cause a whole lot of damage. So Paul appeals to their new identity in Christ, and he essentially says, with great power comes great responsibility. Husbands, you go first. Take the initiative. Be the leader by sacrificing more, sacrificing most often, and sacrificing even though you don't have to and no one expects you to. And when you do this, you will be a powerful and countercultural example and witness to the love of Jesus. Christ-like love is sacrificial, it's selfless, it's voluntary, it's loving someone so much that you genuinely put them before yourselves. So husbands, in what ways are you loving your wives like this? And as I said to the women, I'm not going to define exactly how this should look because this is something that has to grow in your heart. As you follow Jesus more and more deeply and internalize the sacrificial love that he has for you until it fills you up and spills out of you. But I also do want you to take some time to think about this and to be regularly praying about how you can grow to love more like this. The British theologian John Stott wrote a commentary on the book of Ephesians, and he summarizes this passage by saying, what does it mean to submit? It is to give oneself up to somebody. What does it mean to love? It is to give oneself up for somebody, as Christ gave himself up for the church. Thus, submission and love are two aspects of the very same thing, namely of that selfless self-giving which is the foundation of an enduring and growing marriage. And with this in mind, I want to share a couple of practical real-life thoughts to go with all this. You know, we hear about love like this, it sounds beautiful, and I think that most of us want to experience it. But I suspect that most of us want to be loved like this more than we want to love someone else like this. It's so great when my wife sacrifices for me, uh, but when I have to do that, sometimes it's really hard, and it doesn't always feel very good. And because of that, it's easy to fall into this mindset that I will sacrifice for you as much as you sacrifice for me. But if you try to love someone with that kind of expectation attached to it, that's really just a more complicated way of being selfish. 
To truly love someone sacrificially, you can't give with the expectation of getting paid back. And you might not be. Sometimes a spouse gets sick, has an accident, or loses a job, or any other thing might happen, and one spouse might end up having to sacrifice a lot more. It's not always 50-50. But you don't have to keep score between you and your spouse if you remember that you're actually on the same team. And the only way you win is together. But whether it's in marriage, among your friends, or part of a small group, the only way to experience the most rewarding kind of love that comes from God is when each person starts giving sacrificially without expecting to get something equal in return. And one more reason why this can be so hard is that whoever you're trying to love, they're not you. And that means they probably don't even want to be loved exactly the same way that you do. So if you're going to love them well, then you have to learn to understand them. You have to figure out what their preferences are. You have to practice communicating with them in a way that they can receive. And you have to start really caring about what makes them feel loved. But this is why marriage and other close relationships can be so sanctifying and transforming because when we're faced with the challenge of, so of loving someone else who's not exactly the same as us, the only way to do that is to keep growing and sacrificing. Now, as I get ready to wrap up here, I want to share a few concrete challenges for putting sacrificial love into practice. You can try all of these. You can try one or two of these. But just want to give you some concrete ideas. Number one, when you wake up in the morning, think about one way to love that person or make their day better. And then, of course, act on it. Number two, learn to be a cheerful helper. Helper, Don't be difficult for other people to ask for help from. Number three, when someone you love says something that's hard for you to hear, listen and really take some time to think about it before you just get defensive. Number four, never complain about, demean, or talk negatively about your spouse. Now, this doesn't mean you shouldn't seek trusted help or be honest when you're struggling, but seeking healthy help is different than venting or going on a rant. And number five, find some mentors or close friends that won't just take your side when things get tough, but will support you and your spouse together and root for you to build a more Jesus-centered relationship as a couple. In a moment, I'm going to close in prayer, and then we're going to celebrate communion together. And as we get ready to receive the body and blood of Christ, I want to take one more look at the very end of this passage. Uh, in the middle, Paul takes off on an analogy, and he just marvels at the way that Jesus has loved his people, the church. And after using this analogy to inspire sacrificial love between husbands and wives, Paul quotes Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, and in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And what Paul is saying here is that through the sacrificial love of Jesus, we have been united to our Savior. We are considered a very part of his body now. And that's not just a theological concept. But it's a statement about how close Jesus is bringing us to himself. So as we meditate on the sacrificial love 
that Jesus gave us first. Let us come to this communion table and be filled up by him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Sometimes it's complicated, sometimes it's surprising, sometimes it's hard to understand, sometimes it's hard to obey and follow. But Lord, we, we ask that you would illuminate in our minds for each one of us this morning, whether married or whether we're not, who we can be practicing sacrificial love with, who we can be showing sacrificial love to, and how we can do that, not just because it's the right thing to do, not just because we're supposed to or it's an obligation, but because you have done that for us first, and this is the way that we worship you and that we witness to your love. God, fill us up and change us from the inside out, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.